It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who know that three shots is fully vaccinated. Magic number. Magic number is three. Magic number. This is the podcast for people who. Don't talk about Bruno, but do talk about Immuno. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that. I'm hearing a song coming up. That's pretty much all that I've been singing for the past. You know how I got to number one on the billboard? Mm-hmm. That was me. That was me streaming. <laughs> I might have helped a little bit, too. Yeah. Um, drove everybody in my family nuts. And I should mention, too, I have uh, an ancestor named Bruno. So um, actually, I have a few ancestors named Bruno because you know how people did it back in those days. All right. Um, Big news this week um, in that no news is big news. Yeah. Yeah. So I assume you're referring to the fact that at this point we're on – kind of hold as to when and if we're going to be able to immunize kids under five years of age. Correct. That is what I'm referring to. So can you take us through a little bit of um, sort of the background of what happened there? Sure. I mean, I'll give you my understanding. Um, We were, there was going to be an FDA meeting, the, what is it? VR back. I don't know how they pronounce it. Verpac. Basically Verpac. Verpac. Yeah. Uh, And they are kind of the advisory committee to the FDA about vaccines and biologics. And they as and we've watched this process before. We've watched the process with the other age groups where they have their meeting and then the FDA makes their recommendation or the approval or the authorization. Sorry. Uh, And then it goes to CDC's advisory committee and then it goes to the CDC director, et cetera. So this was the first step. We knew that this was coming. We knew that there was uh, a vaccine that was a lower dose that was for kids six months to four years of age. We knew in advance that there was some questions, like some of the releases, we hadn't been able to review the data, but some of the releases from, um, I don't know if it was the company or the FDA or both, had mentioned that there was concern about the two two doses of the vaccine, specifically in the two to four year age range and that it seemed to have efficacy in the six months to two up to two years of age. So this was going in for quite a while, uh, you know, weeks before this meeting, we all knew that this was going to be the discussion topic. I think then the disappointing thing for everybody, not just that this was delayed, but that it was delayed like the day of, or the day before, like very soon before this meeting, suddenly it was decided that they were going to wait until there were th- the finished trials on three doses of the vaccine to see if that would be effective in that two to four year age range. So now we are on hold until April to, to, to accumulate that data and have that meeting. And that really puts a lot of delay for families, especially families that were counting on this to help protect their families, you know, especially those with families with, with more vulnerable people in them. Um, they were really counting on this meeting. So there's a lot to unpack as far as this decision, but I was kind of curious how you reacted when you found out about this. So I think 
I had uh, an alternative reaction um, <laughs> because I was thinking about the FDA's work in terms of my job. Uh -huh. And my job is really to explain to people, you know, about the vaccines, about the recommendations about the vaccines. And <clears throat> I was having a hard time understanding why the FDA was going to be meeting in the first place, why Verpac was going to be meeting, because I knew that Pfizer didn't have all the data they wanted, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that they were like, okay, and the FDA kind of pushed this meeting, that this was not <laughs> Pfizer coming to them and being like, we got data, let's do a thing. Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, it looks like it was about maybe 50% effective for those two to four-year-olds, which yeah. if we rewind back to 2020, we remember that was our benchmark. Like that yeah. was what we hoped yeah. to do. Um, we just happened to come out with like these, you know, 90 plus percent effectiveness rates that altered our expectations. Um, the other thing was that, uh, I was afraid that Verbpack was going to meet and say no. Mm -hmm. And then forever, this vaccine, even if it, the doses were altered or the number of doses or anything like that, it would be a, the FDA said no about this vaccine forever and ever because people don't update their software and their brains with new information. Uh, which is fine. I don't either. But, you know, that's just people hear one thing, it sticks in them forever. And then, you know, it's like wine is always good for your heart for the rest of your life. Right. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Butter, butter is great to eat. All those things. So they just they don't update their, their software. Um, the other thing I was worried was going to happen was that the F, that verb pack would say yes. And then ACIP would say um, we're going to say may instead of should. Children may get vaccinated. We're not going to give a should recommendation. And then parents would just be confused. Yeah. Um, that I really, um, for the purposes, the selfish purposes of my job, I really <laughs> prefer recommendations to be clear. I like clear data, like this vaccine works. This is the right dose. These are the right number of doses. Um, you should get this vaccine. That is that is how I like things to be presented. I feel like it's okay that we have to wait in that I don't think we know for sure what the right dosage or number of doses is. And I feel like it's okay to wait until we do know for that. On the other hand, I feel like it's kind of unacceptable that we've waited this long to start protecting our littlest ones. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think part of that is really, I mean, we just really did wait. Um, and I, I mean, I know that's because that's just how, you know, the research was going to happen. It was going to filter down. Um, and for most of the people in the country, they don't have little, little ones in their homes. And so they've they've moved on. They're not thinking about it. But for a lot of families, there is a lot of turmoil over um, sending o older siblings to school and coming home and having unprotected younger siblings, sending children to daycare, uh, going to the mall. Um, you know, I guess Disneyland and Disney World are removing their mask mandates. So going on vacation, um, there's a lot of turmoil for people. Um, but 
I think ultimately, even though it's unfair that we waited that long for those kids, we still need to get it right. Um, yeah, I hear you. I also, my concern lies with that that all is reasonable, uh, especially in situations where we're not talking about an acute pandemic. But when we're talking about this situation, there, I can't help but have a part of me that says, having that vaccine available. I mean, I understand, like I was thinking that in my head, like, okay, this could be what we, I think they used to call, I don't know if they call it anymore, but the class B recommendation, right? So we're waiting on that third data, third dose data. We expect it to be effective at three doses, a permissive recommendation to allow families who want it to be able to get it seems reasonable to me. Um, I know that's confusing, but at the same time, it's like, this is happening right now. Cases are high right now. It would be great to be able to move that to the point. If we believe it's to be, if we, if the data indicates that it's safe and we know it's effective for six months to two-year-olds, I think there's a case to be made that in the long run, you're going to save more lives if you have this available to families that want it. Um, so I think that it gets really tricky. And so I understand those arguments. And then at the same time, I just, I, th I think it's really pretty crushing to not have this. Well, I think ultimately you're right that how it rolled out was not right. And <clears throat> that decision being made at the kind of last minute was, was a, a major fail. Yeah. Getting people's hopes up and then dashing it was sort of a failure in, I will say leadership. Yeah. Um, but and I don't think they have plans to do a higher dose. Like the question is, you know, a higher dose really doesn't seem to be in the cards. It's no. really, I don't know what, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I believe three doses should be good, but if it doesn't, then where are we? <laughs> yeah. Then we're That's, back to the, uh, we're back to the, um, back to the drawing board. Yeah. Uh, then we've got a much longer wait, which I mean, at that point, you're like, I'd rather have 50% protection than 0%. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. uh, counterpoint, though, is hmm. that at this point, only about 30% of our 5 to 11-year-olds are vaccinated against COVID. Yeah. And that I mean, vaccine has been available with a clear recommendation. And yeah. so I really wonder how many 6-month to 4-year-olds would get this vaccine. Yeah, I expect it will be lower um but at the same time that availability to the families that wanted and needed that's what i'm thinking about right and then you know the the hard part about this entire pandemic is this sort of unknown the venturing into we don't know where we don't know what comes next we don't know exactly what the virus is going to do we're not sure what the you know if the vaccine is going to hold up if the waning immunity matters when it comes to antibodies we just we don't know all that stuff and uh regular people normal humans as i call them are not great not knowing they they feel like science should be able to provide them the answers and quickly yeah. um but you know, I think part of what's going on is a lot of the things, even with the FDA and verb pack and ACIP and changing recommendations and all of this stuff is actually really normal in vaccine world. It's just right. that usually normal people aren't paying attention. Mm -hmm. They, you know, yep. no one knew what ACIP was before. Yep. The pandemic. I mean, I did. I had actually gone to ACIP with Dell Big Tree. I will say. Yeah, I know. Uh, 
Yeah, I made I mean, that I, face. I follow this closely, and I still don't know how to, you know, spell verb back. So, <laughs> yeah, I only know how to say it, to be honest with you, and yeah. that's just because I've heard Paul Offit say it, and I just sure. Like, oh, that's that's well, that's what that is. Um, it would be interesting um, to ask Paul what he, you know, how he thinks he would have voted. Although I know what he's going to say. He would say, yeah. well, I'd have to take a look at the data. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is fair. Uh, but, you know, as far as um, protecting little kids, I think in this moment when we still don't have a vaccine for them, it feels like everyone's just sort of thrown up their hands on mitigating the pandemic. Yeah. Um, some of it, I really feel deeply as far as people saying it's, it's time to get back to normal. Um, I am with significant mitigation measures. I am uh, helping as the assistant director with my kids' school play. And that includes 65 actors and about another 15 stage crew members. Um, fully masked. We ask them to test before every practice. Um, and performance. Um, and so that was one of the things where I was like, we gotta, we gotta give these kids some of their normal experiences. And they were doing all the sports balls too, by the way. So I was like, you I know, they need art. They need art as well. We can't just add back in sports ball. Um, so I really feel the let's get back to normal, but some of it is really just uh, upsetting to me. There's a, a local school that is somehow defying our city's mask mandate and deciding that masks are optional okay i'm just like um, i i mean uh hi from iowa where you know, <laughs> <I know. laughs> we we're you haven't heard we've conquered COVID. it's over here oh yeah you're doing gum swapping meats right gum yeah yeah the gum swapping meats are back on yeah and so the... they were they were down for a while and now you don't even have to rinse off your gum before you swap so nice yeah. Nice, yum. Yeah, delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Sneezing contests and mm -hmm. the whole bit. That's yep. I was I, I was always a good time with those events. <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean, but anyway, <laughs> we laugh so we don't cry. It's true. We really. Uh, I I hope that we don't live to regret all of our rush back to normal, back into the ball pits of America. All right. Well, on we, yeah, on that note, we're going to talk. Actually, we have a really fascinating interview with Dr. Tara Smith, who is uh, an infectious disease epidemiologist out of uh, Kent State in Ohio. And she we've had her on the show before because former she, Iowan, former Iowan. Yes. From the University of Iowa. Thank Although you. she do, I hear she does not participate in gum swapping meets. So <laughs> no, not since that one time. <laughs> but uh we usually have tara on the show to talk about something sciencey or some big study or something interesting this time it's all personal we're going to talk to her about sort of the anti-vaccine bent that runs through her personal life and how she's coped with that so stay tuned she's just on the other side of this break are joined now by Dr. Tara Smith, who is an infectious disease epidemiologist and specializes in things like zoonotic diseases and diseases that are gaining resistance to antibiotics. 
Um, she works at Kent State and she is an all around good human being and smart cookie. So welcome, Tara. Thanks so much for having me back on. We love having you every time. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I have family members who have wonderful expertise in a number of things. My brother's a, a financial guru. Um, my dad knows a lot about construction equipment. Um, and, you know, at, at times in your life, those are really good people to have around. So I'm imagining that if uh, I were your neighbor or friend or book club um, buddy, that I'd be like, I have a question about COVID. I'm going to text Tara. And it would be absolutely um, fantastic to have you around. So I want to transport ourselves back to about March of 2020 when we knew we had to start taking the pandemic seriously. At that point, how were you received by people in your personal life as an expert? Yeah, it, it really depended. I mean, it has been kind of dichotomous um, that obviously I work in a university and I have lots of friends who are academics but are not, you know, infectious disease experts. So uh, lots of them have been turning to me for expertise and guidance, you know, from the beginning of this. Um, I've served on our university's pandemic response committee. So I've been instrumental in trying to keep up with the science and keep everyone informed on what is what is changing for that um, at the university. So, you know, that side of things has been as expected, I guess. Um, and, and similarly with some members of my family who are also very science oriented, even if they're not in, you know, scientific jobs or anything like that, that they, um, you know, they, they are well aware of what I do and, and my expertise in this particular area. So, that was as expected. Um, but I, I do have a lot of folks in my family, in my extended family, who, um, you know, were not necessarily on board with this from the beginning, um, had a lot of skepticism about the pandemic, especially you mentioned in, in March 2020, uh, because most of my extended family are in Ohio and especially in more rural areas of Ohio which didn't get hit early on. You know, we were watching New York City and, uh, you know, Washington State, cities there and, and San Francisco get hit, but it wasn't real yet in those areas. So I, I think it really created a lot of skepticism for people who had not seen it up close and personal at that point in time. And I, I think there was a lot of, of thought that, you know, the experts were just trying to panic, <laughs> trying to, trying to, um, you know, generate fear. And, uh, you know, at that point, I, I think the, the idea was that it was to score points against then President Trump. So based on, so that was kind of your early experience with your family. I'm curious how you feel like that applies, first of all, how that's evolved over time with having family members that are varying opinions on the kind of mitigation efforts. And also, are there observations that you have about from from this experience with your family um, about why in general people might be opposed to just any kind of mitigation efforts even now? Yeah, so I mean, it, as the pandemic has uh, you know kind of rolled out over time, I, I think I think those positions have mostly solidified. 
unfortunately, that, um, you know, especially in, in 2020, that it became really, you know, this big dichotomy between kind of the two sides of my family, the one that tended to be more science oriented and the other ones that tended to be more resistant to science, um, that those really got more entrenched over time. And even when uh, cases started to hit Ohio, um, especially toward the end of the year when it got, you know, really bad, um, I think there was still a lot of, of denial um, and a lot of people that could avoid seeing any of the effects of, of the pandemic. And even those that were, you know, close to people who were working in healthcare or something like that, um, I think still could just suggest it was exaggerated. Um, so so I, I don't think I've seen a lot of change. I think I've seen a lot more kind of digging in to these ideas that developed early on in the pandemic and that I think kind of solidified over over especially 2020. How do you feel like this informs you about people's opinions in general about mitigation efforts? Because we see uh -huh. so much resistance to mitigation efforts uh, as the uh, pandemic has gone on. Um, do you feel like your experiences with your family gives you insight into kind of the population at large in Ohio and America? about why we see such resistance? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think a lot of it was that, you know, here in Ohio, so we, we did have mask mandates for a while for public places that then were rescinded. And so for really the, you know, the better part of the last year or so, we haven't really had any, you know, any mitigation efforts here at all. Um, even my old high school, of course, there is the federal mandate to wear masks on buses, including, um, you know, sc school transportation K through 12. Uh, my high school, my the, the school I grew up in, um, completely declined to do that, even when threatened with loss of, of federal funding. I don't know if they actually had any, um, you know, repercussions for that or not, but they were very strongly against any kind of interventions to prevent spread. And, you know, even when they've seen outbreaks within their schools, which they did, um, you know, several times they had to uh, either you know, shut down school for, for a few days, uh, canceled sporting events because case numbers were so high. I think it was just ignored. That was just something that they saw as inevitable. Um, and that, you know, the, the idea that masking or vaccination or something would not have stopped it. And, and so I, you know, I, I think that their experience with the outbreak has been you know, that is, it's something that will just happen, that, that there is no use in trying to stop it because people are going to get infected anyway. And even, you know, I've had some friends of friends who have died from this. And even with that, they have, you know, I've seen them justify it just by, you know, referring to those people's pre-existing conditions or, you know, the state of their prior health. And, and I think it's really a form of denial that this virus really puts so many people at risk, but they don't want to, I guess, kind of, you know, see themselves as perpetrators of potential virus spread and death in their community. So they just kind of put it on, you know, other people's faults, I guess. Right. It's not, it's not my fault that it's not my job to protect you from a disease. It's not my fault if you succumb to it. Absolutely.
which is an interesting place to be as Americans. And a lot is being made right now about other countries where there's a high level of trust in government and how their infection rates have been lower, their masking compliance has been higher, their vaccination uptake is higher than it is in the United States. Uh, it seems we have a low level of trust in the government, which has translated for, for, for our country to a massive loss of life and a huge amount of hospitalization. It's always curious to me that it seems like the people who have the biggest mistrust in vaccination as part of the government are the people who voted for the person who was in charge when the vaccines were being developed. There's also a lot to be said for people in times of stress and crisis and feeling a lack of control over their lives are prone to conspiratorial thinking. So I'm just kind of wondering if those concepts ring true in your life. If you feel like you see people who feel disempowered um, being sucked in by, you know, this sort of um, grand cinematic style conspiracy theory theorisms why i said that poorly um and if uh and if there's this sort of generic distrust that's they've been harboring for long enough that was just ripe for a pandemic to rip through yeah i, th I think that's something that was simmering before and really got brought to the forefront with this pandemic um and and especially with the intersection of you know public health and and kind of government more broadly that you know even public health independent scientists who may not necessarily work for the government all kind of get lumped into this broad group of people who are telling you what to do and um, you know people don't like that and people don't trust them and then you have that intersection also you know with promoting vaccination and things like that that also brings into this broader conspiracy pharmaceutical companies and the history of mistrust of them as well. So I think all of those things get lumped into one, you know, shadowy cabal of, of people who are trying to influence your decisions, um, take control of your life, you know, force you, quote unquote, to do something that you don't want to do, whether it is taking a vaccine or, or simply wearing a mask. Um, that I, I think that really has has spread over the past two years and, you know, affected people who maybe weren't really into those ideas uh -huh. before the pandemic, uh, but now are exposed to them and, and may, you know, have at least some level of belief in those. And I totally get that too, because I hate being told what to do. <laughs> uh, I always have my first instinct when I'm told to do something is I'm not going to do that. So I have a healthy amount of respect for people who, you know, really want to doubt things as a, a first cause of action. But a lot of people like you are living with family members that they care about, that they love, that they want to protect, who are refusing vaccination. And I'm wondering if you have any tips or suggestions for folks who are feeling a kinship with you about that right now. Yeah, it's hard. And I wish I had, I wish I had the answers. Um, 
you know, be, besides just, just making yourself open, you know, that, that if you have a, a tough conversation to just say, you know, I'm, I'm always here if you have additional questions or if something else comes up that you don't understand or that you heard on a news show or, or a podcast or something like that, if there's something that you want to talk about, um, I'm always open to that. And I think that's in some cases all we can do. You know, you can have these, these tough conversations and you want to protect people. You want them to, you know, to get vaccinated, to take measures to protect their own health and the health of others in their community. But you, you know, with adults, of course, you, you can't make them do that. So it leads to a lot of frustration, especially when, you know, you, you have conversations with people who don't have equivalent backgrounds and, and training. And, and it, it makes it very difficult that they will not, you know, take into account your expertise in this area. So it, it can be frustrating, but I, th- I think we have to try to, uh, as much as possible, keep the emotions out of it or, you know, set them aside a little bit and, and try to understand that really, you know, the other side has fears as well. They're just, they're just different. They, they, they come from different places. Do you think there are perceptions that are held by doctors and other experts about people who don't uh, vaccinate that are not necessarily true? And if so, how can those help inform the kind of conversations that we need to have? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, a lot of people still see people who aren't vaccinated as a monolithic group, you know, instead of having all kinds of different um, you know, ideas and influences for, for reasons that they won't vaccinate, you know, and, and again, I think that's gotten worse over the pandemic as this has gotten politicized, um, you know, that, that now I, I think the perception is of anyone who is not vaccinated, you know, it's because they are, you know, they must be Trump supporters or they must be taking ivermectin or, or something like that. Um, whereas I think there's, you know, a, a still a very broad scope of reasons for not, you know, especially not getting vaccinated that range from still, I think there are people that don't have a lot of great access to the vaccines, don't have paid time off, don't have, you know, the ability to get their children easily into a pediatrics office during care times or things like that, um, that are wholly unrelated, maybe even to skepticism, but are, are more logistical things you know, there are still historical reasons for, you know, many Americans not to trust government or pharmaceutical companies or physicians or other medical providers, you know, based on historical atrocities that have taken place that are difficult to get over. Um, even when you have, you know, for example, Black physicians or Black researchers who are doing some of this, this outreach is still hard to get, you know, get over some of that mistrust. And, and there still is, I think, a lot of also um, mistrust of, you know, pharmaceutical companies that is still lingering on, I think, more maybe of the, the left side of the political spectrum that, you know, is more interested in, you know, quote unquote, natural immunity than, than vaccination and, and, you know, has some reasons, again, historically to not always trust pharmaceutical companies because we know that they have done some bad things in the past. Um, and that's hard, really hard to make up for when you have those stains. So I, I think that there, you know, the, the idea that people aren't taking these vaccines just for one reason, because they want to stick it to the government or, you know, because they 
um, you know, because of their political leanings or something like that is, is not, is, is still not true. It never was true. And it's still not true today. And I, I think we really need to, again, have the conversations with individuals and start with asking them, you know, what their reasons are for not being vaccinated rather than making those assumptions. I, I think that's really great advice. And it really, I think when we come to people with curiosity about where they're at, it makes at least a, a little bit of difference as far as being a person who's trustworthy to have conversations with. So I want to share with uh, the folks at home a little bit about a terrible thing that happened in your family with a family member who was hospitalized and had some really sort of awful outcomes. And I'm wondering if you can just sort of share, if you'd be comfortable sharing with us that person's journey and sort of update us on um, what's going on in your family with that. Yeah. So, um, so I'm, I'm, first I should say I'm, I'm from a huge family. So my father's side, he was the youngest of 13 kids. And so I have lots of cousins um, and many of them are actually a generation you know, older than me because my dad was the youngest. And so one of those cousins um, who is kind of in the, in the middle of the age between what my dad would be today and, and myself um, has, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic on, on social media and things like that was, was posting that, you know, COVID was a hoax and, and all of kind of the stereotypical, uh, you know, social media memes and, and things like that about COVID and had managed to avoid it really for, for almost two years. Um, but then she did end up getting sick. Gosh, what would that maybe December or so, um, kind of at the, the, the division between, um, between Delta and, and Omicron. So I'm honestly not sure which one she ended up um, infected with, but it, it appears that she didn't, you know, really feel very sick at the beginning, but then um, one of her children was worried about her. She was apparently having some you know, mental state issues uh, and, and they called an ambulance and, and took her to the hospital. And when she got there, she was diagnosed with COVID pneumonia and also by that point had some clotting in both of her legs, um, which is, you know, we know COVID can do all these weird cardiovascular things in addition to um, kind of the, what we think of as a typical respiratory infection. And so she was um, in the hospital for quite some time for treatment. They tried to, um, you know, intervene to, to deal with the clotting, but eventually they, they could not do anything else. And so to, you know, basically to save her life, she ended up getting one foot amputated and then the other um, foot was also amputated along with about half of her um, lower leg up to about mid calf. So, you know, it's, it, she has now um, been moved to a rehabilitation center and seems to be doing pretty well from there. Um, but I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of people had no idea, you know, that COVID could do this. Um, she did post about it on her, you know, her social media pages um, to let people know what was going on and, um, you know, mentioned that it was, you know, she had basically had these amputated because of, of clots from COVID. So I think that was a big surprise to everyone that it could be so severe and could have these particular outcomes. We see sometimes with when there's a when there's somebody that, you know, is has such an adverse outcome from a disease 
that historically we've kind of said that this impacts people's thinking, that that, that something that close um, can change minds. I don't know how true that is right now in the COVID yeah. <laughs> era. Uh, do you have insight into that as far as how this has impacted your family and decisions to get vaccinated or to do other, you know, mitigation measures? Yeah. And I haven't seen it, obviously, you know, just, just because it's been, you know, we've, we've had all of this in the midst of the Omicron wave and, and haven't done any kind of in-person family get togethers or anything like that since, since her amputation and she's still in the hospital. So I have not seen any evidence that it, this has impacted anyone yet. And maybe it will be, you know, maybe it will change when she's able to get out. We're able to do more meetups in person. She's usually one of the ones in charge of all of our, again, huge family reunions. So, um, so she is central kind of to, um, you know, to our, our broader family at large. Um, so I, I mean, I hope it will move some people, but I'm honestly not, um, not holding my breath. I mean, I had had, had two uncles who are both undergoing chemotherapy through this. And, you know, to my knowledge, they still have not been vaccinated, even though they're at such high risk. So um, I don't know, you know, what it will take to change some minds when you have people close to you who have undergone some of these extreme events from COVID and it still doesn't seem to sway people, but, but maybe it, maybe, you know, hearing about it will not sway people as much as, as seeing it in person. I don't know. Well, we are so sorry to hear that this is happening and we hope for her recovery. Absolutely. Thank you. And I think that's really important that we all believe that whether or not you you're vaccinated or you railed against mask mandates or whatever, mm -hmm. that no one deserves to be hurt by COVID, that it really is one of those things where we really do want everyone safe, even the people we disagree with. Right, absolutely. And, and I've tried to, you know, to discuss that before too, that that I do have definite anger and frustration at mm -hmm. at you know, people who are anti-vaccine, but not, not the people who get sucked in by the misinformation, but the people who really mm -hmm. are, are leading that, right? Those at kind of the top of the pyramid. That's where I reserve my ire for is, is are the people that are actively and, and, you know, spreading that misinformation and in many cases profiting from it and not the people that, that unfortunately get, get sucked in by that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tara, um, do you have any parting thoughts or words for everyone at home? I know that's totally different for you to be on the podcast and not talk about science at all, but any thoughts that you want to share with everybody? It is. It's so weird not to be talking about the latest studies or something, but um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think everyone's patience, you know, is wearing thin right now. And, mm. you know, I, I think I, I have seen people, you know, really celebrating the loss of some of these, these lives due to COVID when people are unvaccinated. And I don't think that helps anyone. I mean, I, again, I understand the frustration, but you know, the, the let's go Darwin ideas and, and things like that. I, I, I don't think we're going to win any minds or hearts with those. I think we still need to be open and understanding and compassionate to the best of our ability. And, you know, if, if you're otherwise advocating for vaccines, but then, you know, really reveling in, in kind of the demise of some of these people, I think maybe 
think about um, maybe keeping that to yourself off of social media, because I, I really think that is only hurting, uh, you know, hurting the cause, hurting the movement and, you know, giving people things to point at, like, you know, look at how, how these people are celebrating. Uh, I, I think that is not helping us at all right now. Yeah, that's, I couldn't agree more. Well, th thank you so much for joining us and sharing um, all of your wisdom with us, uh, you know, whether it's personal stuff or science stuff, you are an absolute uh, treasure and we're always happy to have you here. Well, thank you again. Appreciate it. And thank you everyone at home for joining us. I just want to mention that if you want to learn more about talking to someone who's vaccine hesitant, that Voices for Vaccines has on our website a toolkit for exactly that purpose. It will walk you through it. So go to voicesforvaccines.org slash resources and you'll see the toolkits listed there and just go ahead and grab that and download it and memorize it and live by it forever. <laughs> On that note, my name is Karen Ernst. I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us on Twitter at Voices Number 4 Vaccines uh, on Instagram at the same um, handle. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines. And you can mostly find me on Twitter. My handle is at PedsGeekMD. That's P-E-D-S GeekMD. All right. Have a great day, everybody. Bye, all. To learn more, visit Faxtalk.org.